gentlemen, boys and girls, Diet Time is here. That's right, we are still talking. Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal Patrick Hamilton coming to you once again from Crystal Lake, or as close as we could possibly afford. And this is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. So we will be unpacking all the gory details of, well, it's not really Friday the 13th anymore. It's Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday in the hopes that a townsperson's end is just the beginning of the jokes that we can make about them. And as always, there's only one person that I trust to help me steal a body from the morgue so that we can snag great ratings. The one and only Gina Radcliffe. How you doing, Gina? Uh, I I don't know. I, I haven't recovered from the last episode. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I have shed my skin and, and have been born anew, but, mm-hmm. but, but not in a good way, in, in, a, in a way that just feels sort of, you know, unclean, like, like I just sort of have this kind of layer of, like, ooze on my skin, and, and I, I find the sight of razors upsetting. I find the sight uh. of dining room tables upsetting, which is inconvenient. <laughs> I just, I just been kind of walking around for the past week with this sort of wince on my face. <laughs> and every, and every once in a while, we'll just let out a shudder, which which is which is good because that'll ensure that nobody ever sits next to me on the subway. But mm-hmm. it's 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 impractical for everyday life. Uh, I think of it akin to I don't know if this experience has ever happened to you, but I uh, happened to crawl into a sleeping bag one very cold night while camping, an activity that I dislike intensely. But I crawled in and I managed to fall asleep, and it was very cold, and I I cuddled up very tight. And when I woke up in the morning, I I discovered that my feet were full of mud and so the inside of my sleeping bag was now full of mud and I was covered in it. Oh. That's how I feel about yes. the last section of this movie. Exactly. I feel filthy, but it's fascinating how it happened. <laughs> filthy and uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that its aim is to make me comfortable. So that is one thing uh, for certain. But I, I don't want to scare you, Gina. We are not alone. That's right. We have a special guest with us. He is a bonafide Hollywood screenwriter and the host of his own podcast, Dead for Filth, the one and only Michael Varati. How are you doing, sir? Hello. Thanks for having me. I am so happy that you are here. I love your podcast. I love what you do. And as soon as I saw you sort of pop up amongst the horror Twitter verse, I said, I've got to get that person on the podcast. And specifically, I thought, I want to know what he thinks of this weird-ass movie. It truly is, but I'm truly honored to be here. I'm excited uh, that you have uh, taken on this monumental task of logging and discussing all of the kills of Camp Crystal Lake and beyond. I mean, my hat's off to you from the whole horror community. This is no small endeavor. (laughs) No, it's not a small endeavor. It is useless, though. So... (laughs) So we have a tradition here at the Kill by Kill podcast. We always like to ask our guests what their first experience was being exposed to the Friday the 13th franchise. What was yours? 
you know, honestly, uh, it would probably be a screening of uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter on USA Up All Night, because I was a very ardent uh, watcher of Up All Night back during its heyday at the end of the 80s and the early 90s. And a lot of the horror movies of the era I was introduced to because I would stay up late and watch them. And, you know, the, the irony of that, since I'm on a podcast all about the kills and, you know, the kills are t- what are celebrated by gore hounds and horror fans when they were aired on network tv were often very truncated so when the movies came to me later via vhs or you know otherwise i got to kind of re-experience them all again for the first time but i I know that my first friday was definitely uh with ronda sheer on usa up all night and i know it was the final chapter because i always remember uh trish and uh tommy and kind of in battle with jason at the end but um as i discussed with you before the show started I have a long thread of of Crystal Lake interaction throughout my career, so I'm very fond of this franchise. And from that first moment on, I've I've just been in love with it. You know, it's one of those things where, unlike maybe the Halloweens or the Nightmare on Elm Streets of the world, it doesn't have that singular film that rises above all else. But as a whole, I think it's super uh, worthy of discussion. Absolutely. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't, wouldn't have been wasting my time and Gina's. Uh, I've probably wasted a great deal of my time. Gina, I, I, I can't explain why she's followed me down this weird-ass <laughs> rabbit hole. So let's get right into it. Let's do a quick body count. Let's remind everyone who is still left alive at this point in the movie. The answer is just about everyone because we've only met some of the protagonists. In fact, in this section of the movie, we'll meet someone who is supposed to be a main character who has not appeared until 38 minutes into it. So let's run them down real quick. First, there's Diana. She's a secret Voorhees in the streets and a Victoria's Secret in the sheets. <laughs> and then we have Sheriff Grandpa, who is uh, Diana's paramour. But as we learned with her conversation with Deputy Josh, she would like more at this stage in her life than just a boyfriend. <laughs> she, she wants someone to settle down with. Uh, we also have Stephen, uh, who we learned from his uh, wardrobe, lettered in getting girls pregnant <laughs> and of course what's the symbol cra- for what's the symbol for that like a positive pregnancy test or like a sperm <laughs> cell entering yes. a, an egg it's a stick with a positive sign <laughs> on it yeah. that's a very specific patch though that you have to order from the company oh they, yeah they have to make them specifically uh in my <laughs> oh i'm not okay i once upon a time i was a boy scout and i got out of it very quickly because i hated camping and boy scouting and the whole fucking thing but my father forced me to go to the boy scout jamboree which is held once every few years back in the part of uh virginia where lightning strikes it all the time uh because every single boy scout jamboree you always read boy scout hit by lightning oh wow um, but we designed our own patches for that for reasons I can't begin, but there were the various groupings got to design their own patch or decide what they, their group was called. And we were the peanut men. We had a <laughs> patch with a Mr. Peanut lounging on a beach. Do I want to know the origin of this name? I think someone said peanut man and we all <laughs> laughed because we were 
fucking goofs <laughs> probably when it comes down to and i was just like whatever when when i got back from this trip my parents were very disappointed because they had purchased a camera for me to take pictures and many of my pictures were blurry and they're like why why are all these pictures of washington dc and the surrounding areas blurry and my answer was simple we weren't allowed to stop and stand we walked everywhere and like there's the washington monument and we walked right past it there's congress walked right past it i've been trying to walk past congress for years (laughs) (laughs) so that was a long digression for nothing okay and finally last but not least is creighton duke our favorite character we're gonna put favorite in dick fingers um (laughs) oh no 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 he's definitely the the best character i i've never seen any movie character who is able to generate such blistering one-sided sexual tension with every person he encounters i mean just kind of wants to fuck everything he is constantly undressing everybody with his eyes but the only one he seemingly has sexual chemistry with is himself yes (laughs) it's him that cigar and whatever is happening underneath that Undertaker from the 1988 WrestleMania gear that he's sporting 24-7. Now, I read that he only agreed to take the part, Stephen Williams, who plays Creighton Duke, if they let him dress like a cowboy. That was his condition for playing the character. And uh, I just love that decision. Like, you know, who reads this script and was like, you know what Creighton Duke needs is a whole lot of wild bunch. <laughs> He needs a duster. A big old 10-gallon hat. (laughs) I need to flash a knife during interviews, and I need to fondle fingers in a way that doesn't seem right. Which they let him keep they let him keep the hat in his jail cell, which which I find implausible. (laughs) Like like as as if to suggest that everything else that happens in this movie is completely plausible. I I take I I take pause in the fact they let him keep his hat in his in the holding cell. He could have hung himself with that hat. (laughs) (laughs) well there's a strap around the the brim so yeah anything's possible uh he could be keeping a a weapon in there his whole body is a weapon we learn the thing i don't quite understand about creighton duke is this he's a bounty hunter whose master plan for capturing and or killing jason Voorhees is going into town and getting himself arrested immediately (laughs) and then recruiting someone else to do the work for him (laughs) that's right (laughs) You go out and get, grab me that $500,000, I'll be right here in this jail cell. This nice, safe, comfortable jail cell. It is a long-standing policy of mine as a working screenwriter to never, you know, besmirch the work of anyone else because, you know, like no one sets out to make a, a bad movie or whatever. But I do think there are elements of this film that feel like the Friday the 13th fan fiction that somehow was given a green light with a budget. And I, I, I kind of think that's part of the charm though in a way but um i also am aware of the fact that the original runtime of the movie was something like 130 minutes and they cut it down which is why there's a lot of like kookiness in terms of of actual narrative structure wait 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 wait! you're saying this movie was edited (laughs) oh i mean not just edited but they chopped out 60 minutes of movie because I literally, t- t- I was running late because I was watching the segment we're covering, because that's how I do it. I do each segment per right before the episode, and normally I'm done by the time we're scheduled to record, and just this keeps going. I mean, that scene in the jail cell was interminable. 
and and you're telling me that there was more oh well i think that's where it comes where it comes from that you had stated in in the last episode gina that it often feels like this was a jason goes to hell tv series and we only started watching in the third episode because everyone talks like well you know because steven had you know got uh diana's sis, uh, daughter pregnant and you're like what we haven't even met this daughter what why is Josh trying to convince Diana to stay with the sheriff? We've only seen them in one scene together. It's now I think it's kind of coming into focus. They had a whole lot of character in this. And I still think it's a very character forward movie, but they had a whole lot more and they just started taking chunks out of it to make it move along. I was saying so they could add another minute or two of deputy Josh turning into a, a puddle of silly putty. Uh, I really like that uh, read that this feels like an episode of a series that we've come into Um, that's that's an interesting kind of take on it because I can see exactly what you're talking about the other thing and I don't know if you've mentioned this on previous episodes discussing this film that I I personally find interesting is that John D. LeMay who plays Steven uh, was also in the Friday the 13th television series but as a completely different character. And in my brain, because it carries the name, they're like in the same world. So the, it's just kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I definitely wonder why exactly they made that decision. If Because, again, that was a division of Paramount Television. I think it came through Atlantis or whatever their you know Canadian subsidiary was. So now this has gone to New Line. And that's where I think we get... That's where I feel this gets that sort of fanfic mm-hmm. idea is that New Line had forever, you know, made their bones on the Nightmare in Elm Street series, which was very supernatural forward. And they have purchased this property that isn't all that supernatural outside of one psychic girl and an undead dude. And that's pretty much it. Right. And, and so they tried to like, well, what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? Demons crawling out of bodies. Hell. And they just kind of pushed all of the things that they were comfortable with onto a Friday the 13th. It makes it very different. Uh, I don't know that it wears that suit very well, but it's they're certainly going for it. They're swinging for the fences. Well, the thing that I always feel like kind of helps that justification too is it doesn't carry the banner name of friday the 13th for the legal reasons they couldn't get it from paramount but it also it's sort of like if you are a fan of the friday movies and this movie feels like a big departure you can make sort of the fan decision of being like well it's a different company it's a different name it's sort of like a jason inspired film but it sort of could be in a different universe if you wanted it to be which means we would have last seen Jason in a vat of toxic waste in Manhattan, and that's where it ends. So, And somewhere out there, there's a comic book that supposedly tells us the journey of him coming back. But the other thing is we've, get, we've been given one kind of semi-answer from Duke as to why, even if he was a 10-year-old boy, awashed of his meat suit by toxic waste, which runs <laughs> in the you know, rivers underneath New York City. We all know this. These are things that we all know. (laughs) And his journey back to New Jersey is that whatever is on top of Jason is just this Hulk of constantly regrowing 
homunculi that that he builds up, which is why, you know, his head looks like a mad ball at the beginning of this. <laughs> um, so let's get right into it. Let's pick up where pick up the action where we left off, and that's with Deputy Josh getting strapped to a sex harness, getting freshly shaved, and getting a mouthful of Jason Heartworm, which is a thing that actually happens in this movie. And Michael, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked our our last guests, but I want to see what your take is on this. Now, the idea here is that inside the Voorhees Manor, there's this sex harness that the coroner Jason has strapped down Deputy Josh to with chains, belts, and straps. Sure. Then he puts the heartworm into Deputy Josh, who is powerless to stop him because of these chains and straps. And my question to you is, how the fuck does Deputy Josh now get out of the sex harness? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. I thought you were going to ask like... (laughs) Yes! Finally! (laughs) Woo! I thought you were going to ask, you know, under what master plan did Jason need to shave him? Also... (laughs) I mean, well, like that, that's just fun. <laughs> that's just fun, Michael. Like sometimes it's also the most calculated thing we've ever, like the most calculated and precise thing we've ever seen Jason Voorhees do. It means that he actually <laughs> is capable of like doing precision work that he had to like <laughs> shave someone. That's like fucking. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to swear on this? Oh fuck um, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, I, I swear so much on my own podcast. I forget I need to ask when I go into other people's. Uh, but the uh, idea is just like, wait, why was this necessary but yeah okay so there's this sort of like i don't know sex dungeon pseudo clive barker scene going on here i you know i'm just gonna assume using jason logic that like now that worm jason spirit thing is inside of deputy josh he just was able to bust out of his constraints because you know jason somehow has like superhuman strength even though like one single chain kept him at the bottom of a lake for 20 years oh come on michael magic lake that's right yeah you got me there (laughs) (laughs) ah now the student has become the master no i just assume that he probably broke out using jason's strength but i mean who knows who knows maybe the necronomicon let him out which is a whole discussion (laughs) later (laughs) it's entirely a possibility yeah oh yeah this movie's got it all including things it wasn't legally allowed to use. So we're going to start up the action here where we meet Jessica, and that's Diana's daughter. She's a woman that's so beautiful that having an infant child and her hair underneath the baseball cap doesn't keep her from landing a TV host boyfriend. She has it all. And she's calling Diana at her apartment and... We, Diana's apartment's pretty awesome. It's I was going to say she room. she noted. I noted here she lives in an incredibly nice house for a diner waitress. <laughs> what are what are home prices happening? We know we didn't. She didn't get uh, her money from selling the Vorkies Manor because that's still up and alive, so that Scooby Doo and the gang can check it out at various points. I mean, look, and- I'm assuming money goes a long way in Crystal Lake because it's a murder town. Like, it's sort of like one of those places, like, who wants to move there? Like, here, have a nine-bedroom house for a low $500 rent. And you're like, what a steal. It's because you're going to, like, end up dismembered before the end of the week. That's right. 
it's the kind of place that you want to rent, not own, because like, what are the chances you're going to live? Sure. I'll take that. So Diana receives a, a call from her daughter, Jessica, who says, I'm coming to visit. I'm bringing the baby. Make sure Steven isn't around because I don't want to see him. And Diana's like, sure. So we don't know what the fuck is happening in this relationship. We just know that, listen, they just because you have a baby with somebody doesn't mean you want to spend the rest of your life with them. This is perfectly fine with me. But it we get no explanations. Maybe think, it happens later in the movie. I just think it's funny that, um, what was the reporter's name again? Robert Campbell? What? Yes, Robert Campbell. So Jessica is her boyfriend is Robert Campbell, and again we are just we are told this because their 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 body language suggests that they have just met that day. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, really, how can you compete with you know, the 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 raw you know, sexual energy that Creighton Duke brings to every encounter he has with everybody but i mean these two i mean he just like looks at her like he's just kind of well all right i guess she'll do (laughs) (laughs) robert campbell robert campbell has all the eroticism of an episode of unsolved mysteries i just i don't get it it's yeah they 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 try a little too hard to you know get across this guy's a sleazeball it's like yeah we kind of figured that already you don't have to continuously emphasize that over and yeah. over and over again. We don't get a lot of this interaction uh, because Deputy Josh breaks in silently. <laughs> no one rings a doorbell. We don't hear a chain snap or anything like that. He just saunters into the room like he owns the place. And uh, that's where he attacks Diana and attempts to pass on the Jason heartworm to her. And we're not entirely sure why at this point, although we are about to learn why that is. An excruciating Um, detail. But their interaction really doesn't last very long because Diana fucking caps his ass with a gunshot to the head just in the nick of time. So Jason zombies don't need brains? Well, it's a different kind (laughs) of possession. I... (laughs) So basically the heart of the the Jason worm is now taking over for the brain of any given Yeah, they they've uh, they've taken some they've gone some interesting they go some interesting directions with the zombie mythos in 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 this movie. Because if we take like the hidden logic, uh which this movie's, you know, borrowing from heavily, once you incapacitate the body's ability to keep living, the alien moves on to the next one. But here he's able to keep bodies going far longer than what is happening in the hidden and i guess you know it just, i wish it had rules that's what i'm <laughs> I was trying to get to yeah it's it i think that they're we said this about the other movies in the past they're they're trying a lot of different things in this and they're not always consistent like i um well i don't want to give anything away about a scene coming up but but i have a question regarding the the consistency of things that happen to certain characters but we'll we'll get to it she uh tries to get out of the room but in typical horror movie fashion uh josh jason is still alive and we are treated to what basically amounts to a graphic attempted rape sequence which is not fun to talk about so i won't let's just lay this but one thing i i I couldn't help but notice is that these iterations of jason make more noise in this movie than any of the other jasons combined they're all grunting they're growling they're making like these like comical little monster noises and like literally (laughs) 
rawr, rawr. and it's just it's it's not scary it's i don't know that it's trying to be funny but it's it's very disconcerting because i i feel like this is a you know jason Voorhees is mentioned but this really isn't a friday the 13th movie this is a monster movie yes. and it's just it's just so you funny and odd to you know, have these characters who are supposed to be you know new incarnations of jason and they're like i said they they, they sound like bears the cartoon bears i give each of them like new names that's how i was enjoying it throughout like right now this is deputy jason and then coming up we've got jason news at 11 so i uh <laughs> I, let's take that on i like it it's even better than deputy josh uh deputy jason uh is you know trying desperately to pass on that cursed diana and who should arrive without knocking or ringing the doorbell either is steven this is crystal lake manners you just walk into someone's fucking home he tackles uh deputy jason immediately gets his ass handed to him in a pretty shocking manner uh, hold on guys hold on i'm sorry i had an emergency my son had strapped a dog collar around his neck and uh, oh. couldn't get it off. Please don't do that again. Can you agree to that? No. Yes. No, you can't. You have to agree to that. All right. Take Nigel with you, please. Nigel, go. Don't do... Please do not harm yourself or others. What do you mean you will? God damn it. He must be listening to the podcast. Oh... He's asked several times. There's no fucking way. We uh, we went to Universal Studios uh, Hollywood, which is where my wife and I met as studio guides. And we were on the tram tour and you go by the Psycho House and they now have uh, an actor portraying the lead character. Norman Bates. Norman Bates. Uh, So they have a a performer coming out as Norman Bates, put a dead body in the back of the trunk and then notice the tram and then walk towards it with a knife in his hand. And he had nightmares for three fucking days (laughs) In in the middle of the Transformers ride line. He's like, what is psycho about? Now I have to explain the movie psycho to my son while robots fight one another. It was very interesting. (laughs) He is not ready for this. <laughs> okay. Uh, where were we? Oh, Stephen. Yeah. So Stephen walks into the room, tackles uh, Deputy Jason, and gets his ass handed to him very quickly. He is not prepared to do battle with a supernatural transferring worm demon man. But that's okay. Diana comes over and stabs him in the back with a poker, a fireplace poker which is the first time we've seen a fireplace poker pushed through somebody since part three. So if you had that on your bingo card, uh, knock it off one more time. (laughs) Oh, but this one wasn't in 3D, so I'm calling shenanigans. (laughs) That's true. It wasn't red hot, it wasn't in 3D, and a person didn't react to it like you had just stolen their last rice cake out of the closet. We do get understated reactions coming up very soon, though. (laughs) We're we're, We're back on that bullshit. So he gets stabbed with that fireplace poker, and uh, uh, he's oh, he gets he comes mystified with himself in the mirror. He becomes hypnotized by his own uh, reflection, and he sees Jason in the mirror. And that's when we get to see real Jason breathing hard again. But none of the Jason zombies breathe hard. Why aren't they carrying on his mannerisms? <laughs> 
<laughs> are you seriously asking, or 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 are you or because I I would just chalk this up to they they just didn't consider that. <laughs> okay, I'll take that as an answer. Sure, why not? <laughs> There's no real answer. Deputy Jason reacts to this somehow, and he throw he reaches into a knife block. Yeah, he yeah, he up. he pulls the he pulls not a knife a knife sharpener. Yes, which and you know and the look on his face is like, well, this will do the job. Well, <laughs> not really. I mean, well, I mean, it did, but I mean, I'm not quite sure why he decided to to choose that. It's not a very balanced weapon, and yet he's able to throw it through Diana's spine, and she leaves this mortal coil, which, again, as far as what Jason's plan is here, he does need Diana's body. It's not his only avenue, but we later learn there's a reason why he's attacking Diana. He needs a body. One Hers is, is, is one of the ones that'll work, so why kill her or is steven using diana as a human shield well i think i think it is supposed to suggest she kind of you know steps in front of him or is just badly placed but i i do appreciate steven's reaction to seeing the grandmother of, of his child correct who yes. who you know is very kind to him you you know presumably would like things for him to work out between him and her daughter is you know, murdered right before his very eyes his reaction is oh shit <laughs> <laughs> yes. he, he is carrying on like he just dropped a tray of drinks I kind of feel like a lot of the reactions to the murders in this movie are pretty underwhelming. And the only justification I can make for it is it's like, oh, well, we live in Crystal Lake. It's Tuesday. Or, you know, it's just like we just like, you know, we're so used to this. It's like you're lucky if you make it to 22 because ha, secrets, everyone gets killed because they're just so sort of like nonplussed by by a lot of it. They They don't seem present sometimes. And I don't know if it's, you know. Listen, a movie set is a crazy place. You're picking things up in pieces. You're sitting around for a really long time while you arrange something under the lights or makeup or special effects or whatever it is. But there, do, this film does suffer somewhat. And part three has many of the same problems of lackluster reactions to the fantastical. It's just one of those things. Now, Steven manages to, to scramble to safety uh, oh, I'm sorry. Steven is the one who rams a poker through uh, Deputy Jason's torso. I got that wrong. That's where that happens. And then uh, Deputy Jason defenestrates himself because, again, Jason hates windows and doors. And he then he lands on the grass and ends up disappearing when the cops arrive, a la Michael Myers. That's, a, you know, that's a Michael Myers thing. That and driving a car when you've never driven one before. Jason Voorhees breaking through doors and windows and driving a boat. That's that's how the thing breaks down. <laughs> Jason, uh, Freddy can do whatever he wants because he lives in people's dreams, but these people have rules. Well, also, I kind of like, you know, we know that Freddy had like a whole human life before he got burned by the PTA or whatever it was. <laughs> uh, and I think that um, that's always my favorite part of the Nightmare franchise that no one ever talks about, where it's just like your dad and I and a bunch of the parents got together. I'm like, whoa, Springwood's got the craziest parent teacher association I've ever seen that they're just going to go light up the janitor. <laughs> And then they keep evidence of his murder, like, just in the house. Yes. It's, there's, there's a whole lot going on there. But no, I mean, Jason and Michael are kind of rudimentary. They can only do a few things. But I assume that, like, probably in his life, like, Freddie made Pop-Tarts and things before he got killed. <laughs> so there's just like... Oh, you better believe it. Giant <laughs> Pop-Tart fan, Freddie Krueger. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, and he liked the terrible ones, the chocolate ones. He didn't even like fruit flavors like a, a normal American. That's how you could tell something was wrong with him. Freddy's uh, true nightmare were, were the discontinued Pop-Tart flavors. <laughs> That's right. He had a passion for them. He was a collector. So at this very moment, Diana tries to pass on her secret to Stephen, but is unable to communicate it. That doesn't stop the movie from lingering over the shot for a full minute. But who should arrive but the third person to not knock or break in the door just saunters into the room is Sheriff Grandpa. He arrives to find Stephen covered in blood and Diana dead. And yet Stephen is simply arrested and not shot on sight because... This is, this is, another, this is another thing where they really just went to town with the with the editing in this because i feel like steven is supposed to be maybe the town bad boy i mean he doesn't look like the town bad boy but oh my god is that is you through think that this character was supposed to be the bad boy and they cast him to be that character well i because the way that the sheriff looks at him like of course of course you killed her you know, what you know, <laughs> you why is this completely unsurprising of course you, you know a woman's dead and you're standing here i mean even though there's you know a shattered window there's probably some evidence that a body was on the ground outside initially before he picked himself up and walked away but it's mm-hmm. the, the the way that like everybody is treating him except the, the one deputy who is you know kind of i guess he looks like he might have been a classmate of his because they're about the same age but i feel like he's supposed to be you know the sort of anti-hero but you know he looks like the paper boy <laughs> but but at least but i feel the character was initially supposed to be written like that because yeah. you know why you know otherwise why wouldn't the sheriff take his well you know i got here and someone was attacking her i mean why wouldn't that be plausible to him if, if he didn't you know unless he already had some predetermined beef with this character that the audience never knows about well i do think a long-standing franchise issue over the course of all of the friday films with the exception of the sheriff at the top of part two who gets hammered to the head is that the whatever the employment litmus to be a police officer in Crystal Lake is not really that high of a bar. Because these people are not like really ever doing the most with their sleuthing. You live in a town where there's a known supernatural serial killer and like ever and by proxy with the exception of the break between six and seven, which is supposed to be a few decades, most of what happens is like Within a few consecutive days. And the police are always just like, Jason, what are you talking about? No, it's, they're not They're not really good at, at what they do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the sheriff the sheriff dad in part six yes. was particularly mm-hmm. egregious about pretending like he didn't know what had happened in his own town like a year earlier. And and again, just sort of you know wrote off every all the trouble that was happening in town because of this bad boy. And again, their 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 definition of a bad boy kind of strongly differs from my own. Well, it must it must be this kid who who you know has come into town and caused all this trouble, and not the hulking monster that killed thirty five people you know last year. Yeah, I like when the police department's solution is like, let's just change the name of the town. Then you know that maybe maybe they're not really that great. And then, and then, apparent, and then, apparently, had some sort of town meeting t- where they informed the parents. Well, just tell your children it's a legend. None of this ever happened. Jason Voorhees didn't exist. This is this is a even though this is something you could look up in a newspaper at your local library. Just just you tell your children who were 
alive when all this happened that none of it actually really happened and it was just a legend parents tell their kids to make sure they behave oh my god that's the cutscene i need from a friday movie where someone's like to the public library and they all like (laughs) pile into the van like tommy jarvis drives them over and they're like just looking through or maybe they just have burned the lot they burn the libraries down that's how serious they are they're like no one must know it's it's like the village It's cut off from all knowledge. And yet the word of Jason Voorhees is leaked out into the world. I just now realized there's only one police officer who's ever taken the threat of Jason Voorhees seriously. And that's in part five. And Jason Voorhees is not in that movie. (laughs) So even then, the police are wrong about the murderer. Because, like, it's got to be Jason Voorhees. And then the mayor who comes from Philadelphia all of a sudden is like, Jason Voorhees! (laughs) (laughs) We're not closing the beaches because of Jason Voorhees. (laughs) I was going to say, like, instead of wearing a jacket with little anchors, I'll always get a jacket with little little canoes all over it or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sweet God. Part five is terrible. Um... (laughs) So, I like Roy. I'm going to say it. (laughs) Listen, I like Roy, too. I like how his his jowls jostle when he's angry. I love that he has a wallet so full of Jason Voorhees newspaper clippings that there's no possible way he could sit down straight because that wallet would always be tilting him to one side. Uh, oh, but let's let's talk about the use of Jason in newspaper clippings all throughout the franchise because they do it in this movie too, and it's just something that I've always like been very fascinated by because they clearly just use studio production stills like for like the local like Crystal Lake Times, and I yeah. want to know. I mean, obviously it's convenient because the movie you know studio has those, and it's like we're gonna make a prop and we're gonna use this like really fancy photo, yeah. but. In the context of the world, who's this Pulitzer Prize winning (laughs) photographer that took these like well lit like, you know, with bounces and like sconce lighting of Jason Voorhees looking like pristine. I want to know who that person is like. like, Just like wielding him, just like wielding a machete, like like an action shot. (laughs) Jason, Jason, I'm from the newspaper. Can you turn this way? No, tilt your head down so I can catch the light because the light is coming over your shoulder. Perfect, perfect. Love it, love it. Breathe harder. We all forgot that moment that Jason posed for Annie Leibovitz. So uh. (laughs) they put, they put on some Motown or some soft seventies singer songwriter (laughs) things. And uh, Pamela's head was just off camera. So he could look off wistfully at it. Perfect. (laughs) This has been the photography, uh, the Jason photography sketch from kill by kill. Solid gold. Perfect. Goes right up there with Jason's swimming lessons and Jason's swap meet. Okay. Uh, Oh, God. Where are we in this fucking movie? I've lost it. Jessica comes home and she meets Vicky, who must be her friend from high school, who's the second waitress uh, at the restaurant. um, Can I stop you for a moment and remark upon whatever the fuck it is Jessica's wearing in this scene? Because it looks like some sort of Starfleet funeral outfit. <laughs> and she's an admiral in a space navy. Yeah, she. it's got these enormous shoulders. Not even shoulder pads. The shoulders themselves are like extending almost out like bat wings. And I was, actually con- I was actually confused for a moment because I thought, is she coming back from Diana's funeral? 
And then, oh. and then I, and then, but I'm like, okay, so she comes home from the funeral and what's the other waitress's name? Vicky? Vicky, she, yeah. She's cleaning the blood. I'm like, oh, oh no, she just arrived. Why is she dressed like this? You assume that she's either arriving for or coming from the funeral based on this very lapel heavy outfit, or it's the trenchiest of trench coats. I couldn't tell you why. But also, also in keeping with crack police investigation, Stephen is still walking around in the blood-soaked clothing that he was arrested in, which I I am not a forensics expert, but I am pretty sure that uh, if you are arrested for someone's murder and your blood is covered in, in your clothing is covered in blood, that's coming right off. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna be putting like you're gonna be putting like a paper suit or a hospital gown or something. But he's just walking around with like his entire front just covered in blood. CSI Crystal Lake is not at the top of their game. This is the same crew that pulled an axe out of Jason's head with their bare fucking hands and then put it in a plastic bag. No, no, you gotta grab that with the plastic bag. Oh, these fucking people. They're, they're gonna be the death of me. <laughs> I really want to see CSI Crystal Lake now, like an ongoing weekly series starring like a, a TV star of yesteryear. Adrian Paul is Detective Carruthers <laughs> in CSI Crystal Lake. <laughs> but like every episode, there the crime is going on behind him. Like he's looking <laughs> in the distance. and <laughs> <laughs> Looks like this crime isn't cut and dry sunglasses up who song jason in the background just continuing to kill somebody it's gonna be it's gotta be something like it's just gotta be something completely out of place like squeeze box or something (laughs) (laughs) pinball pinball wizard (laughs) pinball wizard Oh, sweet Jesus. That would be fantastic. We've already come up with two things that are better than this movie within the movie. So congratulations, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Is it me or has this baby aged from the first time that we saw it? The first time we see it, that baby has no hair. Uh, The next time we see it, it's got a lot of hair. So either hair grew in a lot in between shots or we got ourselves a different baby sitch. Uh, I think what happened was lots and lots of reshoots. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be right about that one. Um, and, they, and they did not want to have to struggle with putting a bald cap on a baby. But they put one on Corey Feldman. So, I mean, really, it's par for course with whatever's going on. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so, Stephen's uh, bestest buddy on the, on the police force, uh, Deputy Dreamboat, uh, locks him up and says, don't do anything stupid which Stephen will do very quickly. And uh, Diana hands off her baby to Vicky uh, and says, hey, take care of my child. I've got a... I don't know what they have to do at the police station that they can't keep the baby around for, but whatever. Everyone has to be separated. It's a horror movie. I'm fine yeah, You'd think that the police station would be the safest place for the baby, but... No, they, they, they put the baby in a cardboard box in a diner. In the back room where the fry cooks keep the old grease. So Stephen has been arrested. He's been taken into custody. His uh, attractive friend has locked him away, told him not to get into any trouble. Well, wouldn't you know it, trouble is in the very next cell. It's in the form of one and the only Creighton Duke, who, who 
says he looks like a sorry sack of shit and he's in a whole mess of trouble and he's the only way he can get out of it and he has the information that can help him prove his innocence but he's going to have to pay a price and that price comes in the form of handing his hand over to Creighton so that he can lovingly stroke his fingers (laughs) for a while. Oh, the scene that goes on and on. And I knew it was coming and I was cringing because I, I, as many horror movies as I have seen, I cannot take anything involving broken bones. Uh I I, I know that there's another scene coming up that I will have to cringe and look away from the the, the screen. But this just, this scene is so prolonged it's it's almost like that that family guys type of humor where it's funny and then it stops being funny and then it eventually comes back around to being funny again because it just keeps going (laughs) the reason why he's stroking his fingers is because duke wants to fuck everyone in this movie but more specifically he is going to break steven's fingers to see the metal of the man i guess is what I I don't know why his idea of uh, of passing this information on that would eventually help him earn half a million dollars means I'm going to break your fingers, which would make you less helpful in helping me earn half a million dollars. But I don't. To, to his That's credit, the way Duke operates. To his credit, Stephen gives about the same, you know, subdued reaction to having his fingers broken as as he did to having Diana, you know, murdered right in front of him. You know, he's he's a little pained, but you know, he, he's doing he's doing all right after a few minutes from having someone break his fingers. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing on this one. It's just like in terms of just like an actual choice, I don't know what that choice was. So, well, let me ask you this, Michael. On a scale uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street 2 to Possession, how sexualized is this scene where one guy in, in a jail cell fondles another man's fingers for pleasure, giggles, and then breaks his fingers one by one? Oh, man. So my, my litmus is Nightmare 2 to Possession, because I would say that both of those are like way more sexual than this. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think that, I don't know, I would maybe firmly plant this somewhere in the exploding parrot scene of Nightmare 2, where it's just like, (laughs) it happens, you're not sure why, but if it's going to move us forward, then like break the goddamn fingers and let's go. (laughs) But Michael, it happens because there's something inside of him that's trying to break free. And if someone, if his family knows about it, everything will blow up. That's true. I mean, we're talking about Jesse in Nightmare 2. Yeah. And, not, and not Creighton Duke's need to just like snap a finger or two. Any any chance I can take to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I'm going to take. Oh, it's a gift. It is a oh, gift to cinema. It, it is. is. The gayest movie of all time. Um, and I make a trade of talking about gay horror movies. And the few that, that touch that. That's, you know, it's like Icarus coming close to the sun. Few compare. <laughs> Um, so this plan works out perfectly for both of them. Uh, Duke wants to break fingers and Steven needs information. And the information he learns is that Diana and his ex-girlfriend and his child are all secret members of the Voorhees clan that were not Jason. This is, are we to assume that Diana is Pamela's daughter or the 
only mentioned in the beginning of this movie and almost nowhere else until the Paramount movie that they ended up not making at the last minute, Elias Voorhees. Are, are they step brother and sister or they're both the product of the of Pamela and Elias? It's got to be Jason's dad because I think that, you know, Cray though she may be, Pamela seems so committed to Jason that if she had another kid, it would have come to play by now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also makes sense that if she was just sticking around the lake, cooking in <laughs> a non-operable kitchen, that maybe Mr. Voorhees like busted off into his own life and has other families. I just think it's like, honestly... I mean, I, I realized that Diana was using a last name, but you know the best way to fly under the radar if you're related to the most famous serial killer in your town is not to just change your last name, but I don't know, move. Like, <laughs> yeah, this, you know, I, I'm not sure why anybody still lives in this town. I, I don't know why the town has not been burned to the ground several times over. Well, remember in part six, they tried to change the name to like Forest Lake or Forest Green or whatever it is. But then at some point, someone was just like, Meh, people keep dying. Let's just change it back. Like there had to be like a Chamber of Commerce meeting to make the decision to change the name, change all the signage and like, you know, uniforms and things. And then after part six, when Frank and Jason shows up, we're just like, let's just change it back. Because then all the signs change back again. There's a <laughs> like, lot it, going on. There's a certain point in the movies where a good half of the victims are people who just thought it would be fun to to go see where you know, 80 people were brutally murdered. Yeah, sure, let's just camp out here and get drunk and have sex outdoors where, where you know, so many people were brutally senselessly slaughtered because that's what you that's what you that's what you do when you when you you know you could go bowling you could go to the movies no we're going to go to the old campsite where a much where, where you know dozens and dozens of people were murdered oh even non-jason related motives are always like really kind of like just big question marks the idea that in part seven tina like watched her dad die on a dock and her therapist is like you know what would be good for you getting over your dad's death is for us to go hang out where he died horribly <laughs> let's just go you know it's a great weekend activity that <laughs> well otherwise we wouldn't get to see that dad's office which is inexplicably full of train memorabilia and one picture of a space shuttle <laughs> which was a detail i did not notice until i saw it on the big screen a month ago at a scare la fest uh screening of it I was like, well, I saw all the train stuff before, but what is the space shuttle doing here? It's classic dad decor. Right. I think we all can agree that the space shuttle is the train of the cosmos. I like it. (laughs) Patrick has fallen silent. I think you've you've stunned him. Oh, my God. This thing is so crazy. Um, so Stephen uh, pulls a uh, we need help. He, he manages to get out of his jail cell by pulling the gun, which is again, this is the second time we've seen this in a Friday the 13th movie where someone has been, managed to pull a deputy's gun on the deputy while inside of a jail cell. They're copying themselves now. I, 
I don't think that that is something that that is a actually a very common trope in in action movies and horror movies. And I, it's probably one of the, the biggest examples of something that almost never bears itself out in real life. Normally, usually because most of the time deputies work in pairs, particularly <laughs> when they're when they're you know dealing with people in jail cells. Mm-hmm. But but you see, it's such a common trope. So Stephen breaks out, uh, and word of his escape, his spread, it spreads to Joey's diner, and uh, we see Joey, uh, her large adult son Ward, and Leslie Jordan. <laughs> I am a hundred percent here for the Leslie Jordan uh, and experience, the Leslie Jordan, Rusty Schwimmer, Joey and Shelby show. Uh, <laughs> I have the knowledge that when they read for these parts, they actually were reading for the opposite roles. Like Joey was supposed to be a man and Shelby Mm -hmm. was supposed to be a woman. And I don't know what happened, but they decided to swap the parts and that's what they ended up playing. And I I just love that. I love that these two. And I also heard that Leslie Jordan and Rusty Schwimmer just improved most of their their scenes. And um, it makes sense because it's entertaining. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's it's a there's an electricity of people caring or at least dedicating themselves to their character. Something that also happens with with uh, Creighton Duke, they sort of pop on screen. She has one particular line when Vicky brings in the baby, and Liza says, "Oh, he's so cute," and Joey goes, "Hey, he could be just as cute sitting out on the sidewalk." Like, are you psychotic? <laughs> What is this? You can't kick a baby out of your diner. But her solution when she learns from the police that Stephen is now on the loose and labeled a murderer is put that baby in the back, make a crib out of something. So out go the lettuce leaves and in goes a child on top of a table. And and they did such a good job of hiding the baby that Stephen is literally in the next room. Because some uh, somehow in the in the I, I don't know I mean Crystal Lake is not a a big town, mm-hmm. but he has gone directly to the diner. Somehow he knew the baby was going to be there. I, I yes. am not sure how he knew the baby was going to be there, but he's 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 exhibiting that that unique to Friday the Thirteenth telepathy. <laughs> Um, my other favorite part of this scene is Leslie Jordan is sitting on his knees like a first grader on the rug waiting for story time. <laughs> He's waiting for someone to explain to him what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel it. I feel it. Here's the thing. Steven needs to find... I, I Maybe he is looking for his ex-girlfriend. Maybe that is the idea here that... I mean, Diane is gone, but he is looking for, oh God, I've forgotten her name at this point. Jessica. Jessica, Jesus. Well, we only just met her. It's not like I've been seeing her for a whole hour of this movie. She doesn't appear for the first 40 fucking minutes. So maybe that was his impulse, but he does see his baby for what he reports to be the first time. And then large adult son Ward comes in and instead of turning him in gives him the keys to his car for reasons like i said like again there's so much of this character that was left on the editing room floor that you're just supposed to assume that you know here are some that generally speaking you know he's he's considered you know a town undesirable but you know there are a few people who know he's a you know just a good-hearted kid how do you become a town undesirable in crystal (laughs) lake (laughs) 
<laughs> evidently, it's evidently it's it's you know knocking up a twenty five year old woman because Jessica, you know, I don't think they're supposed to be particularly young, but no. this, is, this is treated as some sort of. I, I feel like that this is you know almost like a town scandal that that he got this girl pregnant and she left town even though it's 1993 but by, <laughs> but by the friday the 13th timeline it's probably like 2003 or 4 because the actual timeline of the movies when you run it through it like it would be way way later than the 93 right 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 yeah that's that you mentioned it i think somebody did say it was supposed to be like 12 years you know, after the next after the last one so yeah nobody was just you know you know, leaving town in 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 a, in a cloud of shame and secrecy when they're twenty five because you're you're an unmarried you're you're an unmarried uh, mother. That's right. And actually, wait, how old is Jason? Because when you think about it, Jason would have like was eleven years old when he drowned, and then so Pamela's like hanging out. He grows up to at least his twenties, so you've got a huge span there. And then in between four and five, Tommy. Jarvis has grown up into an adult, so there's at least a decade there, and he's like in a home. And then between five and six, there's a couple years, and then Tommy drops Jason in the lake, and there's like another 20 years that pass. What is going on? (laughs) Why is it always the 80s? (laughs) It's a time vortex. They live in a time vortex, and we're about to find out why. Because when Stephen beats feet to Castle Vorkies, the existence of which just leaves more questions than answers, which was probably a better subhead for this movie than the final Friday, just leaves more questions than answers. Uh, This joint turns out to be a real Texas Chainsaw Massacre family home. Stephen happens upon... The Nepro, ne- the Nepro, uh, fuck, the, I'm the, putting the, a P into this. The Necronomicon I, from the Evil Dead movies. I literally, I stopped the movie and I was like, what? <laughs> I like wrote it in all caps. What? Four question marks. <laughs> Honestly, I have to tell you, this was the point when I was watching this in preparation to do this episode with you both uh, that I was like, oh, okay. I'm glad that I have this segment because I finally can say something about Jason Goes to Hell that I think this scene lends itself to, and it's it's both a compliment but not, and it's this. This movie is not a good Friday the 13th sequel. It's barely a Friday the 13th sequel. It's like adjacent to the world. But you know what it makes an okay sequel to, especially from this point onwards? An Evil Dead movie. This could be like an adjacent Evil Dead movie, especially for the two deaths that we're about to have coming. It's just like wonky melty crazy like heads popping off and creatures crawling out and cabin in the woods it's like all right if we're gonna leave jason behind and we're gonna throw the book in there let's just assume whatever (laughs) i don't know where ash is but like clearly this is what happens when bruce campbell's not around it just goes cray the genius of this is that uh the first time uh, sam raimi discovered that the necronomicon the actual prop used in Evil Dead 2 was in this movie was when he saw the movie. <laughs> no one asked, hey, is this okay? They just did it because one of the effects guys had worked on Evil Dead 2 and had that prop. So, yeah. There's got to be some legality issues. <laughs> well, he said, as long as you don't use it in any of the other movies, I'm fine. He was, Sam Raimi seems to be a mensch in, in many ways and shapes and forms. And I guess he just let it slide. What could you do at this point? But it's also, this movie was seen by 14 people. 
So two, you know. two, two of which were, were Patrick and me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this and, movie made $15.9 million at the box office, just so <laughs> you know, from a $3 million budget. So that's just, incre- that's crazy to me, honestly. <laughs> I just, it's amazing to me how little of this movie I remembered. Like, I was just, like, just stunned when I saw that there was some vague tie-in to the Evil Dead movies. And, and then never really, it's never really brought up again. No, it's not. It, things just happen and then are forgotten about because another amount of craziness is just around the corner. I, I really wanted him to just find other, I wanted him to like, you look at something on the wall and then you, the, you know, the camera pans in and it's the picture at the end of the shining <laughs> or just, you know, or like, uh, uh, the puzzle fa- box, the puzzle <laughs> box, uh, father Karras's medallion, just, just, you know, just the storehouse of meaningful props from other horror movies. Just get crazy. There's a bushel of killer tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) There's a jar of the stuff. (laughs) There's a killer baby from the It's Alive movies. And we just throw it all in. Yeah, exactly. Um, We... Lipstick, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Before Stephen can get too far into his investigation, guess who saunters into the house? Uh, Robert Campbell, and uh, he takes a phone call on the most 90s of cell phones, and we now are treated to a three-minute, ma- three one-man show conversation with him and a producer, and he tells us all sorts of information. One, he wants to film the Voorhees house with fake props to make it creepier because the sex harness that he keeps touching only makes it feel more quaint. Let's bump <laughs> this up a little bit. Number two... He has stolen Diana's body from the morgue so that the camera crew can find it and with the sheriff boyfriend uh, looking on. And this will equal somehow massive ratings. It must be sweep sweep. <laughs> uh, cut to Deputy Jason bursting in and they have a bit of a tussle, but it's not too hard. He doesn't have to strap him in this time. He just manages to lay old Robert Campbell down and give him a smooch, and the heartworm gets transferred to Robert Campbell, meaning there are now two slimy persons occupying the same body. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 uh, and this then leads to a very elaborate scene of Josh melting on screen for what feels like hours, as if the KNB effects group were like, Remember RoboCop? Let's do RoboCop. <laughs> and they go about doing it rather fucking convincingly. But the melting death, I think, lends credence to the, like, well, at least we're in an Evil Dead kind of world now. Because when have we ever seen something like this in a fright? Like, in a way, putting the Nep- Necronomicon right before that, where he, like, just ooze puddles out. That feels way more like a Raimi move than a Friday the 13th move. Yes. Well, here's my question. Shouldn't, you know, as soon as somebody walked into the room where the, the sex harness is, shouldn't there have been a big old puddle of, you know, coroner Phil on the floor? <laughs> we don't know that there wasn't. What happened yeah. to him? Uh, he was swept up in a bucket by Deputy Jason, I suppose. Jason's a big fan of cleanup. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, yeah, I guess if he took the time to, to, to shave Deputy Josh, then yeah, I guess he's going to... You clean up, you know, 
whatever ooze is left over of Karn or Phil. I mean, if we know one thing about Jason is that he is an interior slash exterior decorator. He does like to place bodies just so. So he's not going to just leave it hanging out. Like, there's a purpose to this. Um, he is an artist, thank you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he, he wants to create a visual palette, and it's not just a, a, a pile of goo on a dining room table. I'm sure it's in a lovingly displayed in a tree somewhere outside. Look, he learned it from his mom. They're, <laughs> they're you know, acquaint people. They've they are. got home and garden. I'm very, I'm very here for this. Yes. There's uh, many things in common in the Voorhees family. One of them is incredible forearm strength, and the other is the desire for everything to have a certain feng shui. <laughs> Jason <laughs> and decoupages so... in between films. It's a whole thing. <laughs> and so this leads us once again to... Everyone's favorite decision-making activity, it's choose-your-own-death-venture time. And as always, the rules are this. If you were forced to die in one of the ways we discussed in this section of the movie, which would you choose and why? Up for bid this time, we have Knife Sharpener to the Back, uh, Jason Heartworm Transfer, or just Melting. Just Melting. Uh, and so, Michael, as our guest, uh, you, you're, it is your show. You get to choose first. I mean, it's got to be the heartworm transfer, right? Like, not only is it less egregious and horrible than the other two, but it also means that I get to be Jason for a bit. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I kind of just feel like if we're going to lean into the world and I'm going to have to do this, I might as well get to be the main act for a little while. Uh, even if it means that my throat has to bug out and I have to get all like bloodshot eyes, but <laughs> whatevs. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, that's a horrible way to die, but it, then at least you kind of get to steal the show for a while. So this I'm going to go with that. Okay. Well, you do know that you're going to have to spend the rest of your time on this mortal coil wearing suspenders. Yeah. I mean, there are sacrifices that one has to make. It's better than overalls, I guess. <laughs> You heard it here first. Suspenders better than overalls. All right, Gina, what say you? Uh, I, too, am going to go with the heartworm, mostly because I just want to know what it's like to be able to throw someone through a window. <laughs> I, I would like to know what it's like to have super strength, um, to be able to be in all places at all times. That would be that would be very convenient for my morning commute. Um, and I just, you know, I, I just want to you know, be able to suddenly appear behind people, you know, scare them. I think it'd be kind of fun. Sure. Why not? Uh, I, I'll tell you this right now. There's no way in hell I'm going with melting. Uh, that, that shit is crazy. I think I'm going to go with knife sharpener in the back f for one reason. And that is I'm not going to end up being buried. I'm going to be stolen by a TV producer and uh, be shoved into a closet. And frankly, Mm, there's just something about burial that I don't like, and this gets me out of it. So that's where I'm going. Well, I don't think they're going to leave her there. Well, they kind of have to now. Yeah. Well, eventually, they'll they'll ret retrieve her, I would imagine. <laughs> she fell into the basement. Who's going to want to go into the basement with all those melty bodies about? You make an excellent point. <laughs> Oh, it's the only job I got. Well, there you have it. Uh, that's it for this section of the movie. Hey, Michael, uh, where can people see, hear, and know more about you? 
well, you can find me if you are interested in more of my shenanigans directly on Twitter at Michael Verratti. That's V as in Victor, A-R-R-A-T-I. Um, on, you can also follow my podcast uh, on Twitter at Dead for Filth. We do a new episode every Friday where I sit with a different creator in the horror genre. And we talk about the relationship between uh, the LGBTQ identity and horror. I've had a lot of really great people on, like Jeffrey Reddick, who created Final Destination, uh, Darren Stein, who made Jawbreaker, Veronica Cartwright from Alien and Witches of Weestook was just on. Uh, it's it's a, a fun series where I just sit and talk about uh, creative things and, and, and our creative connections and otherness with this, this spooky genre that we all love. Uh, as a screenwriter, you can check out a lot of my movies. Uh, I do movies for Lifetime, Hallmark, Ion. I've also written a lot of indie horror films, uh, one of which, Tales of Poe, actually stars Adrian King from the first Friday the 13th and, Ad- and Amy Steele from Friday the 13th Part 2. Uh, so I'm out there in the world. Just IMDb me and have a look. Please do it today. Do it right away, people. Oh, Gina, where can people hear and see more from you on the internets? Um, I, I, that's a, that's a tough act to follow. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I write about movies and television and other sundry things at GinaRadcliffe.com. And I am on Twitter at Porcelain72. Excellent. All right, people, uh, you know the drill. Uh, would you mind rating and reviewing us on iTunes? If you do, let us know what your favorite kill is in the Friday the 13th series or any of the films we've covered. Uh, if you do that, we'll read it here on the air. That's our solemn vow to you, the Kill by Kill listener. Follow us on Twitter at Kill by Kill Pod, Instagram Kill by Kill Podcast, or our Facebook group. Just hit Kill by Kill inside your search window there and you'll find us. And that will do it for this episode. Don't worry. The body count will continue. And until next time, for myself and for Michael and for Gina, bye-bye, everybody. Kills produced by We Write Good and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Friday the 13th is owned by Paramount Pictures. Jason is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill logo was designed by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.